I read where early on their ashes were actually mailed back to their families in a can since COD. Here's a famous photograph of incarcerated Jews at Buchenwald. Is it coming? Maybe. Maybe not. Buchenwald was the only concentration camp visited by General Dwight Eisenhower at the end of the war. In fact, seeing the dead, he walked to the roadside and he vomited. Later he wrote these words, I have never felt able to describe my emotional reaction when I first came face to face with indisputable evidence of Nazi brutality and ruthless disregard of every shred of decency. I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify about these things in case there ever grew up at home that belief that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. In fact, Eisenhower ordered reporters to be sent to document the atrocities. Sadly, 60 years later, Eisenhower's concern has become prophetic. For Holocaust deniers are now popping up all over. From Roman Catholic Bishop Richard Williamson to Iranian President Ahmadinejad. Such denials are regularly promoted in the Muslim world. In 2000, Hamas leaders called the Holocaust an invented story with no basis. You see, here's my point. Forget the lessons of history and you are destined to repeat them. History is a teacher as long as history is remembered. And that's not only true with history's horrors, it's also true with its pleasantries. Psalm 78 implores Israel to learn from both its successes and its failures. Psalm 78 begins, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. It's interesting, in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God by using illustrations from nature. And right in the midst of his teaching there, he quotes this, this psalm, Psalm 78, verses 2 and 3. For just as Jesus was using parables from nature to communicate truth, the psalmist Asaph here is also using parables from history to convey spiritual truths. And he speaks of these truths here in verse 4. He says, We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. We are going to tell of these truths of what God has done. Understand, Christianity is not just a collection of metaphysical myths. It's historical fact. It's a historical faith. God invaded time and space. God has worked within history. In fact, history is nothing more than His story. And this is what our children need to know. Don't just tell your kids that God is wonderful and He's all-powerful. Describe how He has put His power on display. Illustrate His power through the Word and in your own life. To a child, a picture is worth a thousand words. He says, For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, 
that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the words of God, but keep His commandments. The next generation of Jews should realize how instrumental God had been in their past so that they can put their faith in Him in the future. He says that the generation to come might set their hope in God. This is what we want for our kids, is it not? You know, the great danger is to forget. You know, we're astonished that the Jews could ever forget the parting of the Red Sea or God bringing water from the rock. And yet we are just as guilty of forgetting God's work in our past as well. Always remember this. The devil wants us to remember the things we ought to forget and forget the things we ought to remember. We as Christians have a responsibility to bring to remembrance, to bring to our remembrance and to our children's remembrance. You know, the younger generation should recall God's work so that they are not like their fathers, he says, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse 9, the children of Ephraim, this was one of the tribes of Israel, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders. Notice that, they forgot. That He had shown them marvelous things He did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zon. Zon was the Hebrew name for an Egyptian city called Tanis. It was the third most important Egyptian city behind Memphis and Thebes. You remember in the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, when they found the ark, Indiana Jones went to the city of Tanis. What, what does that mean with the Bible study here? Absolutely nothing, but I just thought it was interesting. But here Asaph talks about the, the city of Zone or Tanis. This is where God worked great plagues. He worked great wonders there in the heart of Egypt for the Hebrews. He also divided the sea and he caused them to pass through. And he made the water stand up like a heap. And I picture Charlton Heston, you know, holding up his, his staff, you know, over the Red Sea. And the waters peel back. And they actually stand up like heaps of wheat all along the, all along the riverbed, the ocean bed. He says, in the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. As they journeyed through the wilderness, you'll remember on their way to Mount Sinai, God's GPS was a cloud by day and a fire by night. He splits the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. God busted open rocks for His people and revealed subterranean springs that fed their thirst. God worked miracles in the desert sands for the Hebrews. And how did they respond to God? But they sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. The food of their fancy. That's what Rachel Ray cooks up on the Food Channel. The food of their, that fancy food. You know, that's the Food Channel stuff. Remember Israel's ingratitude. God provided a daily diet of miracle manna. You remember this? 
Every morning they would come out, they would wake up, and there this wonder bread would be on the ground. They called it manna. Literally, manna means what is it? They didn't know. We're told in Numbers 11, verse 7, that it looked like a white seed. It was kind of grainy and white. I think it was grits. <laughs> but Israel, you see, hungered for tastier vittles. They wanted that food on the food channel. The leeks and onions from Egypt. They say, yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide some meat for these people? Man, we want some chili, man. You know, we're tired of this manna all the time. We want a little meat. There's some meat. You know, evidently God deliberately made the manna to taste bland. He didn't want Israel to fall in love with physical pleasures. Instead, he wanted his people to be spiritually oriented. You know, food is really just body fuel. God's word is the soul food. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says that God fed Israel manna to humble them. And to teach them that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. The wilderness menu was God's way of creating an appetite in His people for spiritual things, not physical things. But again, Israel failed to learn the lesson. Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. And so a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. Yet He had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Notice the manna here is referred to as angels' food. Evidently, one of heaven's staples is manna. Manna is angelic munchies. It's a heavenly food. The angels love it. The, the, the Hebrews hated it. But Israel wanted to exchange the taste of manna. They wanted a little beef jerky, you know. Give us some beef. In verse 26, he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. You know, be careful what you ask for. God will give it to you. Be careful. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he brought in the south wind. And he also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. God quelled their hunger with some quail. I mean, these bird game flew into the camp about three feet off the ground, the Old Testament tells us. About the height of a good fastball. And the people were able to just knock them down. And so they ate and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. Oh my, be careful what you ask for. God might just give it to you. You know, God promised the Jews quail. He put it on the menu, not for one day, not for two days, but for a whole month they ate this meat. So much so that the Bible says it was coming out their nostrils. He gave them quail. They ate the quail until they were sick of it. And yet when the quail came, the Jews acted like bird brains. They were greedy and they grabbed it all up. 
as if, as if there was a limited supply. In other words, they refused to trust God, and God judged them even while they were chewing the meat. Verse 30, they were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned, still didn't learn from their lessons, and did not believe in His wondrous works. Therefore their, day, therefore, their days He consumed in futility, and their years in fear. You know, God administers two types of judgment. There is His active judgment, and there is His passive judgment. You know, God's active judgment is His direct intervention. You know, sort of like the lightning bolt from heaven. You know, somebody says something they shouldn't say, and oh, but be careful, a light, lightning bolt's going to come. That's God's active judgment. He can judge in that way. But there's also God's passive judgment. And, and this is when God just sort of turns us over to our sin. He just allows us to live in our rebellion and reap its consequences. And this is a serious, heavy judgment as well. You see, Israel not only suffered God's active judgment, but He gave them over to days of futility and years of fear. You know, at times God just leaves you in your misery. Well, verses 34 through 37 sum up Israel's painful past. He says, when He slew them, then they sought Him. Isn't that a reminder? Boy, when things go wrong for us, that's when we seek God, but... Once things turn, we, we tend to forget, don't we? And they returned and they sought diligently for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered Him with their mouth and they lied to Him with their tongue for their heart was not steadfast with Him nor were they faithful in His covenant. You know, they were punished for their sin and so they would repent only to do the same sin again. You know, they were good at mouthing their allegiance, but they had no follow-through, no real heart devotion. And sadly, Israel's history was a series of broken promises. And let me suggest tonight, let me ask you the question, how does your spiritual history read? Do you keep the promises you've made to God in the dark times when you're desperate? And, oh God, if you'll, I'll... Do you keep those promises? Or is your spiritual history a series of broken promises? Verse 38. But God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time He turned His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath, for He remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. I mean, though Israel was faithless to God, God proved faithful to Israel. He got angry when Israel bucked his will, just as he gets angry with us when we do the same. But God was merciful. Notice this. He didn't stir up all his wrath. God took into account human fragility. You know, if God wanted to squish us like little bugs every time we failed, God would be a tap dancer. All we are is a warm puff of breath on a cold morning. All we are is just hot air. We're nothing but a glorified burp. That's what he says. God remembers this about us. You know, he remembers that we're just a breath passing away and does not come again. Notice too how verse 39 there refutes reincarnation. 
Man is what? A breath that passes away and does not come again. Guys, you don't get any second cracks at this life. Once you die, it's the judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment, Hebrews tells us. You know, it's been said, Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because like most men, Moses was too proud to stop and ask for directions. Well, that's supposed to be funny, but a better summation uh, for their wanderings occurs in verse 40. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. The Hebrew word here translated limited means to scratch off. You know, since Israel chose to grumble at God rather than trust in God, the Lord scratched off blessings that He had intended to give them. Remember, the older generation died in the wilderness, having never entered the promised land. And I'm sure you know the definition of the word oxymoron. It's a statement that appears contradictory, yet in reality it makes sense. I collect these oxymorons. Here are a few of my favorites. Plastic glass. Working vacation. Good grief. No grief is good. What what do you mean good grief? Fresh prune. Doesn't make sense, but I guess it does. Pretty ugly. That's pretty ugly. How can anything be pretty ugly? Smart bomb. (laughs) No, it's not. This is for you golfers. Metal woods. Temporary tax increase. That's an oxymoron, man. How about this one? Government organization. (laughs) This is going to get me in trouble. Female logic. (laughs) Just an oxymoron, man, I'm telling you. And and then last but not least, my favorite. Political promise. Sure. But verse 41 is the mother of all oxymorons. The Hebrews limited the Holy One of Israel. Oh, they limited the God who has no limits. They limited the unlimitable God. Why? How? By their chronic complaining. If you go back and read through the book of Numbers, you'll discover that the wilderness Hebrews had three basic complaints. They grumbled about the manna, they grumbled about Moses, and they grumbled about their mission. They didn't want to go into that land. They're giants in the land. They complained about the menu, the man of God, and the marching orders. Hey, be careful lest you grumble about the same three trifecta. You know, Israel's problem was unbelief. They didn't trust God to provide what they needed, the menu, to guide them through their leader, Moses, and to override the obstacles in their life, their mission. Guys, a critical spirit will stifle God's blessing and your effectiveness. If you want God to scratch off blessings He really wants to give you, start grumbling. Start grumbling about His provision. Start grumbling about your pastor. Start grumbling about the mission that God has called, your calling in your life. Hey, be careful lest you limit the unlimitable God. Verse 42 continues. They did not remember His power. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy. 
when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zon. Turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He's recounting here the ten plagues. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt. That was the final plague. The first of their strength in the tents of Ham. Ham, by the way, was, was Noah's son who actually settled in Africa. In fact, if you'll go back to Genesis 10, it charts the descendants of Ham. And one of his sons was named Mizraim, which is the biblical name for Egypt. He goes on, he says, but he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. He's just helping them remember their history. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. In other words, they didn't shoot straight. They weren't straight shooters. For they provoked Him to anger with their high places and moved Him to jealousy with their carved images. You know, the high places were these unsanctioned places of worship. And they invariably either led to idolatry or they were prompted by idolatry. They were never a good thing. He says, when God heard this, He was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent He had placed among men, and delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hand. 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us about the Philistines' defeat of Israel. Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of the high priest Eli, they actually took the Ark of the Covenant into battle there at Aphek. In other words, they trusted in the things of God rather than in God Himself. A lot of people do that. Well, I'm okay. I go to church. Well, you know, I sing in the choir. Well, I give my money. People can trust in the things of God rather than trust in God Himself. And what happened to the Hebrews when they took the Ark into battle? The Philistines defeated them. And the ark fell into enemy hands. In addition, the tabernacle was rasped to the ground. It was a truly dark day in the history of Israel. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Israel suffered a crushing defeat. Then, that's a good word. Then, for 20 years later, Samuel led the nation in the battle of Mizpah, and he beat back the Philistine hordes, and he liberated Israel. You know, by the way, it happened when it happened. It happened suddenly and spontaneously. We're told, then the Lord awoke as from sleep. 
Now this is obviously a metaphor, for Psalm 121 verse 4 reads, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't have a body that needs to rest or needs to go to sleep. God never shuts his eyes or loses consciousness. Yet at the battle of Mizpah, it was as if God said, enough is enough. You know, like you, when you suddenly wake out of sleep, your wife hits you, did you hear that, honey? And you spring out of bed, you know, where is it? Where is it? You know, there's a spontaneous, you know, initiation of power. This is what happened at the battle of Mizpah. It was as if God said, enough is enough, and he sprang like a man who suddenly awakes. He gives another metaphor, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. Now, now here's some bizarre imagery. I'll bet you didn't know that the Bible depicts God as a drunk soldier. That's the picture he gives here. And let me suggest that a soldier with a gun under the influence of alcohol, he's got no fear and he knows no conscience, cautious. Cautiousness. Did I say that right? You know, he, he just, he's ready for action. You get a little, get a little uh, alcohol under your belt, get a gun in your hand, you're a soldier, you're used to shooting people. I mean, you get all that combination together, and, and you, got, you got no reservations. You're ready for action. That's what he's saying about God. It was that kind of abandon that God used to defeat the Philistines. He says, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a perpetual reproach. Verse 67, Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. You know, During the period of the judges, Ephraim was the leading tribe in Israel. Joshua had been from the family of Joseph and from his son Ephraim. But when the ark was returned to Israel, it was no longer housed in Shiloh within Ephraim, but it was housed in Judah. David would eventually bring the ark up to his new capital, Jerusalem, which was in the tribe of Judah. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. The sanctuary he's talking about here was King Solomon's temple that was built again in Jerusalem in Judah. And he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Notice this, he calls David his servant. You'll recall David was a king. He was a warrior, he was a general, he was a musician, he wrote many of the psalms, and he was a prophet. But most importantly, his most important job was that of God's servant. He says, David, my servant, God chose. And God took David from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. He took David from being a shepherd of sheep to being a shepherd of a nation. And so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And I love this equipment that he has. This is the equipment of a great leader. Integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands. What a great combination. Integrity and skill. This is what every leader needs. Every, <laughs> every leader needs. Heart and hands, integrity and skill. Well, Psalm 79 leaps about 400 years from the time of David to the fall of Jerusalem. 
And it was probably written by an exiled Jew living in Babylon, mourning the sacking of the city and the destruction of the temple. This Asaph is mourning the nation's plight and pondering her, pondering her future. Verse 1 says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. Now, the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple on August the 6th. 586 B.C. I always remember that date because it's my mother-in-law's birthday. What the destruction of the temple and my mother-in-law's birthday have in common, I'll let you figure out, but it's just how I remember it. The Jerusalem crime scene was really gruesome. We're told the dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. And this was the most humiliating and shameful thing that could befall a Jew. The inability to give their loved one a decent burial. And yet this was the plight they faced. When the Babylonians invaded, here the dead bodies were thrown out on the streets. They couldn't even give them all a decent burial. He says, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. And do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. You know, God's mercies are like a good fastball. Fast and low. You know, there's no limit as to how low God's grace will go. No matter what shameful thing you've done. No matter what disgrace you've caused. No one is so low that God won't forgive them and God won't show mercy if they simply ask. And notice too, His mercies are speedy. They're fast and low. But they're speedy mercies. God's mercies run a 4-2, 40-yard dash. God's mercies sprint when necessary. I like to say, mercy travels at the speed of need. You need God's mercies, it shows up fast. Verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. You see, this was a problem. With the temple in ruins, where could they go to offer a sacrifice and to atone or cover their sins? The ultimate answer for them was Jesus. He would become the sacrifice that would take away their sins forever. He says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. You know, the Babylonians, they had barged into the courts of the temple and they were looking around for a carved image or for some molded idol. They were idolaters. You put idols in temples. They were looking for the God of the Hebrews. They didn't know that the Hebrews worshipped the invisible God. And so they started shouting, Where's your God? Mocking the Jews for their faith. These pagan Babylonians had no idea that they were standing right there in the presence of God. Here the psalmist cries out for God to avenge his name on these pagans. He says, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. 
according to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. This is another one of what we call the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist is calling down a curse on his enemies. You know, all these types of psalms are born out of the Jewish sense of justice. Hopefully you have that same instinct too. I do. I mean, if you, this is the instinct that sort of rises up within you when you're watching the 6 o'clock news. You know, and it's just crime after crime after crime. Crimes against innocent people. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, where is the justice? I mean, how come these people are getting away with what they're getting away with? When is justice going to come? That's something God's put within all of us. This is, why the, the, this is why the psalmist is crying out, God, bring down justice on the heads of your enemies, on those that have defiled your name and forsaken your law. He concludes, so we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We shall show forth your praise to all generations. Now in the preface to Psalm 80, we're told that it's set to the lilies. It must have been sung in the spring of the year, perhaps for Passover. He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. You know, in the Old Testament, the shepherd of Israel was Jehovah God. Whereas in the New Testament, John chapter 10, the good shepherd is who? He's Jesus. Here apparently the shepherd of Israel dwelled between the cherubim. It was apparently Jesus who dwelled there over the mercy seat, there in the Holy of Holies. You remember the centerpiece of the temple. It was the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, it was a small box, about two and a half feet by four and a half feet. It was covered with a golden lid, a solid golden lid. On the lid were two angels or cherubs. And between these angels, a visible, tangible manifestation of the glory of God resided right there in the heart of the temple. The Hebrews called it the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. Now, it's important that you have this in your mind because when we get over to Revelation, this is the scene that we see in heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, and we're going to see Jesus sitting on that throne. And above him, Revelation tells us, are four living creatures, or cherubim, that, that are above him. And Jesus is, is there in the middle of it. This is the same picture we're going to see when we get to heaven. In fact, the Bible tells us that the temple was really just a small-scale model of heaven itself. He goes on, he says, Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, all the tribes of Israel, stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Man, he's asking God to smile on them. I, I like that. God, smile on us, and we'll be saved. You, you might not know how to pray any more than that. God, smile on me. But that's a good prayer to pray. God, you smile on me, and everything will be okay. I'll be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among us. That's still the case uh, with Israel today. Restore us, O God of hosts. 
Cause your face to shine. We shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You know, Psalm 80 was written at a time of great trouble for Israel. Israel was a vine, he's saying. And God had plucked her out of Egypt and planted her in the promised land. And for a time, he had removed his hedge of protection so that the nations were helping themselves to Israel's fruit. They had pillaged and plundered the nation. Judaism was uprooted because it failed to produce spiritual fruit. Today, the Jewish vine has been replaced in God's kingdom by Jesus. In fact, John 15 calls Jesus the true vine. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In other words, the only way for us to grow and produce spiritual fruit today is to be grafted into Jesus. Man, if you haven't been grafted into Jesus, if you haven't been connected to Him, there's no way for you to please God. There's no way for spiritual fruit to to be real in your life, for you to connect with God, unless you have that connection with Jesus. He's saying here that a relationship with Jesus does what Jewish religion failed to do. Create spiritual fruit. The psalmist continues, you prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Under the reign of David and Solomon, Israel expanded its borders and rose to great prominence. The vine spread and covered the land. But then tragedy struck. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. The Babylonians were this wild boar that came into the land and and pillaged Judah. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine in the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you have made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. This is a reference here to the king. But then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Notice this. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Psalm 80 is also a Messianic psalm. In the Old Testament, the branch. Here he talks about, you know, the branch. And the branch was used by the prophets for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is called the branch of righteousness. There are a host of scriptures that refer to this. Jeremiah 23 and 33, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 3 verse 8 and 6 verse 12. They all refer to the Messiah as the branch. Well, Psalm 81 begins. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel or the tambourine, the pleasant harp with the lute. Now remember Psalm 80 was written, or Psalm 81 was written by Asaph, who was the temple worship leader. In other words, he's the man who is directing praise. In other words, Asaph Blevins is orchestrating when and how this timbrel is to be used in the worship. We once had a lady who, for some reason, thought it was cool to bring her own tambourine to church. 
And so she'd come in with her tambourine and she'd just kind of play it, you know, on her own, you know, whenever it suited her. Sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. We, we kind of put her career to an end before it really began. But this could be a problem if you brought your own tambourine into the temple. Here, here this is the worship leader with the timbrel. Verse 3, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Now the Jews celebrated a feast that corresponded with the lunar calendar, the feast of the new moon. Every new moon, it was a time to worship God. From ancient times, calendars have been based on the phases of the moon. Tonight, we have a wedding. And in ancient Babylon, understand that wedding feasts lasted for a whole month. I mean, they're going to have some wings and then head home. But in ancient times, it was a bigger deal. The wedding was a month-long party where the participants were all fed a, a mead, they drank mead for this month. Mead is sort of like a, a, a honey wine. And so for the whole month, they drank mead, they drank wine for the whole month. This is where we get the phrase, honeymoon. You know, it's, uh, it's the honeymoon. I hope that Michael and Cindy don't take this to mean that they can go out and drink wine for a month. But I also hope that they experience a wine-like joy in their hearts, and in their marriage, and that their honeymoon never ends. How sweet. That, that's my gift to you tonight. That's my, my, my attempt at being sweet. I was hoping all the ladies would say, Oh, good, thank you. Now for the Jews, the Feast of the New Moon was a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt where I heard a language I did not understand. This monthly feast brought them back to their Egyptian bondage. Again, they, they're expected to remember. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. What an invitation from God. God promises to spoon feed us. As parents tell their child, open wide. Did I have a picture? No picture. And yet I know people who have clenched jaw and who have buttoned lips and they refuse to open up to God. They serve foreign gods or they try to just do it themselves. They're missing out on tremendous blessing. For God will spoon feed you. God will bless you. If you'll open wide. Verse 11. But my people would not heed my voice. And Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart. To walk in their own counsels. Remember that. God's active and passive judgment. Here God gives them over to their own stubborn heart. And this is a terrible price to pay. You know we often 
overlook the dangers that we've been spared. God spares us from so much. When God stops intervening, that's when we begin to taste our own foolishness. God cries out from a broken heart. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. God loves us so passionately, and he hates to see us make things more difficult on ourselves than they have to be. Verse 14, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. Blessings untold could have belonged to Israel if they had just walked in God's ways. Instead, they bristled up in their stubbornness and in their rebellion. And they limited God. Once again, you can sum up their history in two words. Blown opportunities. Well, real quickly, Psalm 82. Imagine now a judge on the bench pocketing bribes. He's bullying witnesses. He's bending justice to suit himself. When suddenly he finds himself on trial. God is now sitting at the bench, and the judge is being judged. Welcome to Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And notice here, Israel's judiciary is referred to as gods with a little g. The Hebrew word translated gods, plural, means mighty ones. You see, the position of a judge in Israel was a sacred trust that only God could bestow. These judges represented God and they administered His law. You remember when Moses appointed 70 men to help him judge the people? The Spirit of God came upon these men, these judges. Their decisions were inspired by God. Here's a great quote. The judge's decision was to be based on the law of God. Quoted, uh, guided by the mind of God and delivered through the Spirit of God. The office of judge was the most godlike position in ancient Israel. You know, sadly, American courts today, they no longer sense this allegiance to, to the one true God. Now, judges today, they like to play God, don't they? They're all the time playing God. They're all the time trying to decide what's best and right for us. But here's the problem. Judges in America... The American courts have become completely secularized today. I mean, they're, they're no longer, there's no longer any sense of allegiance to God. In fact, often the courts in America try to protect us from God. Understand, the Bible, our Christian heritage, has always been the foundation for Western jurisprudence. The Christian sense of justice should permeate our courts. The ideas of inalienable rights and personal property, these are biblical concepts. Take away the Bible and you have no, no Western sense of justice. This is why when Christian influence wanes, true justice suffers a death blow. Well, the, the chapter, verse 2, begins God's critique of Israel's judiciary. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand, 
They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, there are the Mormons, for one, and there are some other cult groups and New Age groups that use this verse to teach that man can become a god. That man can become his own deity. This is the popular proof text that the cultist uses, this verse. But I want you to look at the next verse to interpret this in its context. Verse 7 says, But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. You think you're a god, but you're going to die like a man. That's what he's saying. Rather than teach us here our potential for deity, it reminds us of our mortality as human beings. The people the psalmist calls gods will die like men. In other words, they were, they were men, they are men, and they will die like men. They need to stop playing God and they need to trust in the one true God. The judges sat in God's seat, but they never gained God's nature and God's love. And they shouldn't be playing God. Remember the desire to become like God was the sin that caused Satan to fall from heaven. and The lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. There is only one God. We should submit to Him. We should be glad that that one God is not me and not you. Remember our study this morning. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Even the judges have a judge. The one true God will judge all nations. Now it's time for a wedding.